0: Welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we've
1: been going down the American Film Institute's 100 years of film scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We're all the way down to number four on their list.
0: Which means that on this episode, we'll be discussing Bernard Herrmann's score to the most shocking film in movie history, (gasps) 1960s Psycho.
1: Psycho was written by Joseph Stefano, based on the novel by Robert Bloch, and it was produced and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Andy, what's the story of Psycho?
0: Well, John, Psycho is a black and white thriller drama about a young woman frustrated with her life who, when the opportunity to steal $40,000 is dropped in her lap, she can't resist the temptation and, on the spur of a moment, suddenly finds herself a hunted criminal.
1: That young woman, Marion Crane, is played by Janet Lee. Her sister, Lila Crane, is played by Vera Miles. Her boyfriend, Sam, is played by John Gavin. And in the course of the movie, we come across a detective played by Martin Balsam and a hotelier played by Anthony Perkins. And a special appearance by Alfred Hitchcock as man standing on the sidewalk in front of the shop window.
0: So Marion is secretary at a real estate office and one day a swaggering Texan comes in to make a sale and just leaves all this cash for her to take to the bank and she can't help herself she absconds with the money and heads out of town in her car from then on it's a high-tension thriller where we don't know whether she's going to be able to outrun the authorities or her employer or indeed her own conscience good enough
1: good enough (laughs) or is it
0: (laughs) good enough for the intro
1: All right, now that we're out of the intro, if you don't know why the description that we just gave of the movie was in fact not good enough, then maybe you... Don't listen to this, yeah. Yeah, then maybe you should go watch the movie.
0: This is the spoileriest movie of all time. It's the movie that created the whole genre of spoilers and spoiler alerts. created the
1: concept of it.
0: Right. If you are unspoiled, for God's sake, don't make this podcast be... (laughs) how you got spoiled seriously
1: we wouldn't want to steal your innocence go watch the movie come on although i suspect andy to be fair that there aren't a lot of people even if people who haven't seen psycho who don't know what we're talking about because if you know nothing about psycho except for one thing you know about the thing right i don't know all right all right
0: never ruin other people's movies because you made assumptions about what they know maybe they don't know take this as the spoiler break from here on out, we're really assuming you've seen it. It's almost irresponsible of you to listen to the rest if you don't know what we haven't <laughs> yeah, said Yeah, come
1: yet. on. What's the matter with you?
0: Here's the break.
1: So we hinted about this at the end of the last episode. And of course, we uh, make connections all the time on Twitter, but it's probably monstrous of us that we have actually yet to acknowledge on the air our debt in uh, the creation of this podcast to my friend's podcast.
0: Truly monstrous.
1: We're monsters. My friends Craig and Carla Kakowski have a show called Craig's List. Craig has kept a list of his 100 favorite movies since he was young and constantly curates and reorders his list. And he's doing a podcast where he makes his wife watch all of those movies and they talk about them. And one of the movies on his list was Psycho, and I was lucky enough to be a guest on that show And to talk about Psycho, and I was sort of there as, uh,
0: you know, an expert witness about the score to Psycho. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, Andy. You said, I recorded this podcast, you should listen to it. So I had a train ride, and I listened to it. And I thought, I like listening to someone talk about movie scores. I would listen to more of these if there were, but there weren't yet. So... I said, maybe we should make some more of those. Maybe we should do that over and over.
1: Yeah, well, here we are. This is uh, episode, what is it, 23. And now we've come back full circle. Yeah, so I wanted to thank Craig and Carla. I had a great time on that show with my friends. I think they're really funny. They're both really talented improvisers, comedy actors. And uh, yeah, everybody check out their show, of course, Craigslist. Anyway, when I was on that show... And I mean, if you heard that show, you're probably gonna hear me <laughs> say some of the same stuff.
0: Oh, I heard that show, John. I, I heard that show.
1: Yeah, I'm saying. and you like I'm probably also gonna make some of the same jokes. I don't know if I even made jokes. Craig and Carla certainly made jokes. I'm gonna try not to steal their jokes. But what can you do? You know, they've been implanted into my subconscious. Anyway, but one thing I did say is that the music for Psycho, you know, in particular, the most famous music from Psycho, the murder scene music, the shower scene music, is perhaps... The most iconic marriage of music to film imaginable. You know, when we were talking about Jaws, I said that Jaws had this onomatopoeia effect where the sound of the music became the sound of the actual thing. Bottom, bottom is the sound of a shark now in culture. And similarly, I think is the sound of... Stabbing somebody with a knife, that is its own iconic connection that really stands apart. And, you know, so fitting that it was talking about this score on this other podcast that prompted us to talk about all these other scores, because in a real way, I think this score is sort of emblematic of scores and what scores can do.
0: Yeah. The music is an icon. You know, it has transcended movies and music. It functions as a little noise that you make to make a kind of reference. If you go beep beep beep, it means uh, I'm insane. I'm going to kill you. (laughs) An automata. Now, some people say weep weep weep, and some people say veep veep veep. Really? Now, what did you just say now?
1: Vweep. I always heard it as an R. I think it's an R. I think it's a
0: re 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 Yeah, I think I've seen re re re. It's not actually a very easy sound to imitate with your voice. <name>
1: You know, actually, I think that when peeling back the curtain here, looking back into our prehistory as we are now, as we were trying to come up with the cover image for our show on iTunes and stuff, one of the things I think we considered was a picture of those notes, those right notes as they were notated in the score because that, you know, seemed like such a good thing to stand in for the sound of music and movies.
0: Right. If one note had to be the spokesperson for all of film scoring, it's probably that high E-flat.
1: Yeah, that high E flat. Well, first it's just this high E flat. And then it comes back around. We hear it again. And now that high E flat has a line drawn diagonally leading up into it. And that indicates that the violinist should do a glissando, slide their fingers up the fingerboard of the violin into the note so that the pitch raises and you really get this screeching effect. So first we hear it without that and then the same sequence of ultra, ultra dissonant notes all come back in again and do it again with that glissando screeching effect.
0: I actually only noticed this in rewatching the movie for the show just this past week that for the first half of the cue, the knife hasn't struck flesh yet and it's just a struggle uh-huh. and the weeping comes in as there starts to be actual wounding That horrible sound effect of a knife going into a melon.
1: A cassava melon is something that Craig brought up on Craigslist.
0: So the first half is just the horror and the presence of the knife. Hmm. And then this slide is the violence of the actual murder. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that. And you read comments about the score written right after it came out. And a number of people seem to have been confused about what they were listening to. And they thought maybe it was electronic sounds or bird noises or just some kind of sound effect. They could not... Place that it was violins in the highest register sliding. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty clear once you know that that's what it is, but it, it was such a bizarre sound, especially coming out of the rest of the score that does not have slides like that in it and doesn't use that register.
1: Mm -hmm. Another thing that's noteworthy about all these high sliding violins is the combination of the notes that are being played on top of each other are like the most dissonant possible combination of notes. It's a very intentionally jarring, unsettling effect to layer all these really high, loud, screeching dissonant notes that where would you have ever heard such a close dissonant cluster of notes before? I think it's dissonance also makes it unusual and clear what it is.
0: Yeah, it's right at the edge of musical sound. Yeah. It's sort of the worst sound you can make within (laughs) traditional musical notation.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's the worst sound you can make. Uh, I like that. But boy, yeah. I mean, if you can think of something that is the worst sound you can make, what a powerful thing to have in your movie, right?
0: Of course, there are avant-garde things you can do that are much more unpleasant, you know, timbrely. But here he is working within traditional pitches, normal tuning. He's just writing circles on the lines. normal instruments. Normal instruments. Even the technique here is not particularly eccentric. It's just an extreme register and uh, an extreme dissonance.
1: Yeah, with just regular notes on regular instruments notated on a regular score. Yeah,
0: here's what Bernard Herrmann had to say about people being confused about what sound they were listening to. Quote, many people have inquired how I achieved the sound effects behind the murder scene. Violins did it. People <laughs> laugh when they learn it's just violins. And that's interesting to me. It shows that people are so jaded that if you give them cold water, they wonder what kind of champagne it is. It's just the strings doing something every violinist does all day long when he tunes up. The effect is common as rocks. (laughs) I just thought that was funny uh, and typical of his attitude that any possible response is annoying to him.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like we said in the episode we did about his score to Vertigo, he was a, an irascible sort of a guy. He was a bit of a grump and a hard guy to work with.
0: Uh, quick clip to illustrate. This is him being interviewed in 1970. The interviewer asks him, does he have full control on every score? Control
2: over, over, over oh, every music. score I've ever done, I've written exactly what I wanted to write. Have you selected the passages in the picture? Yes, I do that. That's my profession, not that, You're sure pretty good on Well, that's my talent. What do I need some help with
3: to tell me what he thinks?
1: (laughs) (laughs) He was an iconoclast, but that confidence in his own opinion (laughs) and his own thoughts about things, like you said in that episode, it's an enormous asset to the music and to the movie because he does things in a way really all his own.
0: Yeah, his conviction about his own choices... I think shows through in the choices, shows through in how bold the choices are. And the specific way that that applies in this scene is Hitchcock basically said, here's the movie, Do what you like with it. I just have one request. Don't write music for the shower scene because we want it to be just a horror.
1: Yeah. Hitchcock wanted it to be real.
0: He wanted it to be visceral. I mean, I don't know about real because the whole movie is such a heightened kind of shocker of a movie. But he wanted it to be like, you hear a knife going in flesh. How awful is that? Yeah. So he said, do whatever you want for this whole movie, essentially. Just don't write music for that. (laughs) Then he came back from some vacation he'd been on and... He said, when Hitchcock returned, we played the score for him in the mixing and dubbing studio. We dubbed the composite without any musical effects behind the murder scene and we let him watch it. Then I said, I really do have something composed for it. And now that you've seen it your way, let's try mine. We played him my version with the music. He said, of course, that's the one we'll use. (laughs) I said, but you requested that we not add any music. Improper suggestion, my boy. Improper suggestion. (laughs) He replied.
1: I've heard that it's possible to watch the shower scene without the music to experience it the first way that Herman played it for Hitchcock in that screening.
0: Yeah, we've got that. It's on one of the DVDs. Have you ever watched the scene that way? Yeah, it doesn't really work. I mean, you can understand what the concept was, but the fact that it's so it's got an incredible number of cuts, and you become much more aware of the artifice of all of those cuts, at least I did, you start to notice when the sound effects don't match the cutting, or when they do match the cutting, and it's very quick, and it feels choppy, which obviously there's a thematic reason why that might seem like a good idea, but at least to me, it did not have the sense of dramatic force. It just became this kind of constructed thing Mm -hmm. that obviously depicts something horrifying, but the music makes it wrenching at a level that relates to the situation instead of just to the filmmaking. I feel like it's almost distancing to not have that music there tying all of that editing together.
1: Absolutely, and I think, you know, in the last bunch of episodes, we've been talking about how music is a generalizing force in that it encourages the audience to imagine that the experiences on the screen relate to them that they're about something that everybody can experience and absolutely this might be the a number one example of music reaching through the screen and saying to the audience this could happen to you. this horror that we're watching Janet Lee experience, here's you know a deep access to it. The music translates that horror in a deep-seated way so that you experience the same horror instead of just yeah admiring the construction of it. It takes on emotional significance by having this music that elevates it above the sum of its parts, above the mere construction of all of these shots run together.
0: Right. Now, I don't want to give the filmmaking short shrift here it's brilliantly cut together of course graphically very you know Saul Bass the title designer actually did all the storyboarding for this it's very graphically cleverly worked out and let's not forget that this is the biggest twist in all of movie making yeah it's like a twist for the entire history of film because people didn't even notice suspect twists going into this movie the betrayal of the audience's expectations at this moment is as violent as can be imagined right So I can completely understand why Hitchcock thought that kind of shock is a non-musical shock. Mm. I mean Hitchcock was so fascinated by the problem of manipulating the audience and he kind of didn't want some extraneous musical ideas getting in on this piece of action that he was so excited about you know they spent a whole week filming this 45 second sequence, something like that. It was like, this was his project. The, you know, the idea of the improper suggestion, him immediately realizing, oh, there's even bigger game here. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't see it because I was so caught up in the details. I can see how that might have surprised him. He needed to be shown it to understand it. Mm. You know, there's a sequence a little later where it seems to me that Hitchcock has asserted to Hermann, you know what, we're not going to use your music because I'm so attached to doing this without music, which is the sequence when... Norman pushes Marion's car with the corpse in it into the swamp oh you know I wondered about that there's a piece of music that Hermann's score calls the swamp but we hear that piece of music while Norman is still cleaning up the hotel room and there's another piece of music called the cleanup which we don't hear at all so I think what happened was Hitchcock said this piece of music you've written for the swamp is great music the movie will benefit from it but I want the swamp to play with just sound effects And so in that swamp sequence, you can kind of get a sense of the way Hitchcock saw the movie, which is a little bit more sardonic, because that's the sequence where the car sinks, 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 and then stops, and Norman's biting his fingernails. Right, and it
1: invites you to kind of root for the murderer for a second, like, oh, come on, I hope it sinks.
0: In fact, I think I read somewhere Hitchcock saying that he knew the movie was working when he showed it at a test screening, and there was a sigh of relief when the car begins sinking again, right. and then you hear these grotesque, you know, blah 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 as it goes under the mud. So the music that we hear in the previous sequence is called The Swamp in the score, and it's all oozy, creepy sounds. And that's great music, fantastic piece of music, and it's just kind of been wedged in before to leave that sequence unscored.
2: Huh. I
0: tried to sync it up, it's a little difficult, but I believe when you hear the pizzicati in the cellos that this was supposed to sync up with the moment when the car has stopped syncing and uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Another thing about how Hitchcock apparently envisioned the score is that he initially said he thought it might want a kind of a jazzy score. Hmm. So I think he just saw this as a real low, pulpy, schlocky shocker.
1: Yeah, I think that was explicitly the idea. You know, the movie's made in black and white after Hitchcock has already made a bunch of movies in color, but he wanted to kind of set this challenge for himself to bring his skills to bear on a B-movie. You know, he saw that there was an appetite in the movie going public for this kind of cheap thrill ride productions that the studios churned out and thought, well, you know, I'm Hitchcock. What if I made a movie that way? I'll make it cheaply. I'll do it in black and white because it's cheaper. That's why all those movies are made in black and white. And, you know, it'll be about something tawdry, you know, it'll have some gruesome, titillating stuff in it, but, you know, it'll be a Hitchcock movie. And, you know, I gotta say, I think he succeeded.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can't help but speculate that he just wanted in on that. He saw those movies and thought, yeah, I can do that. Oh, I know I can do that. (laughs) How can we frame this project so that I can be given leave to make some of this really sleazy crap? Right. That (laughs) looks fun to me.
1: Yeah, exactly right. He wanted to go slumming it with this sleazy crap. Interesting, though, I did read that he actually did not think that his experiment was working. As he was editing the movie together, he thought that it was kind of falling flat. He didn't think that he had succeeded. He didn't think that the movie was really carrying its weight. Until he heard the score in it. The score really convinced him that it worked. You know, the score actually made it work, but he was remarkably, for him, he was really aware of how much importance somebody else's work had in making what he had done really stand up. And, you know, this is after Herman has already scored North by Northwest and Vertigo for him, but he was so taken with the transformative effect that the score had on the movie, the way it really made it click together that he is quoted as saying 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music.
0: I think, you know, my big uh, overarching point of view on this score is that Uh not only did this music lift up the movie and make it work and make Hitchcock feel like he had something good on his hands rather than something that he didn't think really had come off but also the music almost completely remakes the spirit of the movie. I think that it doesn't play as sleazy crap now, and I don't think Hitchcock even knew that was possible. I think he was so convinced that this material was fundamentally tawdry that the notion that you could have a serious-minded score that delivered something genuinely disturbing and not just a series of prank buzzers what do you call those things handshake buzzers (laughs) Joy buzzers? joy buzzers
1: yeah yeah it's a weird name for them yeah not that I think about
0: it I don't think he could conceive of this movie being anything other than a bunch of gimmicks And when Hermann showed up with this really high-minded, classy, classical, this score that took it so, so seriously, Mm -hmm. I think that that was revelatory to him, or maybe not even revelatory. Maybe he never even fully understood what the score had done. But to me, what this score does is it gives a third dimension to something that has very deliberately been made as a two-dimensional piece of pulp sort of redefines what kind of movie it is, what it's about, how it plays.
1: You're definitely right that it does that. I think it's interesting, though, that you described it as a third dimension to something that was flat to begin with. I think it's maybe ironic that that arose Out of Herman's effort, because Herman made an effort here to match what he was doing with his orchestra to the intentional flatness of what Hitchcock had done. You know, this sleazy slumming it in terms of having the film be in black and white and in the style of these B thrill movies of the time. Hermann saw that and he said, okay, I have to do something similar with the orchestra. I have to restrain myself from using the full palette of color that I normally would to match the way that Hitchcock has restrained himself from shooting in color. And so he made this crucial decision that he was going to achieve a black and white sound by scoring the movie only for string instruments.
0: Yeah, just to put a fine spin on the concept of matching there. I think that what he's doing by indeed coming up with a kind of a timbre that does seem to correspond to the look of the film is he's spinning that look. He's kind of convincing you that that look is artful and Mm -hmm. holds the possibility of being profound. Had he not found this sound to match it, I think we would be inclined to see it as seeming kind of like a TV show. You know, he shot it with his TV crew and in the style that he was using for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And I think at one point, he actually, when he wasn't very happy with the results, considered releasing it as a two-parter on TV. I think it would look more like a TV show and feel more like a TV show. And Hermann found this side of black and white that might not otherwise have come to the fore, but by writing music that brought out that meaning of black and white, that black and white can be sober, black and white can be dignified, black and white can be emotionally sophisticated, he found a sound that resonated with that aspect of the look of the film.
1: You get lost in the black and white and you forget that there's a world outside of it, and by having the score be so judiciously constrained and circumscribed in the sound it was going to have, it also has this feeling of nope, just look right here in this circle I'm drawing and that's all you're going to need to see. That's all you're going to need to think about. This is the whole world that you need to be thinking about.
0: And that's something that Hermann did throughout his career. He always seems to have thought in terms of instrumentation very early on, often first, and I think we mentioned this in the Vertigo conversation, that he would sketch out a cue by picking a bunch of instruments that were going to be the palette for that cue. And so he found the palette for this thing I guess what I want to be saying is, black and white sound for a black and white movie, well, you know, just a piano would also be black and white in its way, or, you know, like, just marimbas, just mallet instruments, Uh that could also sound kind of cold and black and white, but he has found a reduced and limited timbre that also suggests a depth, a breadth... You know, the classical string orchestra has a vast capacity for expression. It does not feel like a world that has any limits.
1: Yeah, but it's still a really remarkable decision to make, to limit himself. He can't use percussion. There's, you know, so many things that you might want to put a percussive effect to in a horror movie, in a scary thing. He can't use brass instruments for their force and power. He can't use wind instruments for their color.
0: Yeah, I think I have found a quote here from Joseph Stefano, who wrote the screenplay, saying that when Hermann told him he was just going to use strings... I thought it was weird. No drums, no rhythm section. Yeah. I think that's just what they anticipated for this weird movie about crazy people. I think in 1959, 1960, the idea was, you know, crazy murder was going to have some element of jazzy edginess to it. Yeah, crime jazz. Crime, yeah.
1: Well, by picking the strings, he limited his pout. He wanted the kind of homogenous sound of a string orchestra. You know, the range of instruments... They all look alike. They all basically sound alike, except for their register, their pitch. They make sound in the same way, so it all blends together into a very unified whole, a very kind of monolithic, just a blob of sound that is totally uniform.
0: Yeah, it's one unified composition. There's a sense of classical form and cohesion that, like I was saying, just for the editing and the shower scene serves, but over the course of the whole movie, it also serves. Yeah. I mean, does this story really make sense? The music really sells the idea that this all is necessary. This forms a cohesive whole. This has been thought through and is worth your putting some thought into. Yeah, the unity puts that across.
1: So... He decides he's going to write for strings only, but he's still Bernard Herrmann. And one of the important compositional techniques that we talked about in Vertigo is that he very readily takes small building block cellular ideas and he stacks them and restacks them and arranges them and rearranges them. And it really presages, like you said before, minimalism, but, you know, that hadn't been a thing yet. He is supremely architectural in building a whole structure out of these small pieces. Sure enough, he does the same thing here, even though he's working with only one color of brick. And I think it's so remarkable, he still manages to get this incredibly broad spectrum of timbres and colors and textures out of what we were just saying was a homogeneous thing.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: Okay, so here's a cue where I think it's easy to hear this kind of building block, repetitive, passing material back and forth technique pretty easily. This is a cue called the package where Janet Lee is trying to switch her car to lose the tail of the police officer that she's nervous about for no real reason. And she goes into this used car lot and she goes into the bathroom to retrieve the stolen money that she's making off with in order to pay for the new car that she's switching to. So there's some violins playing this high note and there's this little tentative gesture that Hermann has set up that is associated with the money, with this cash that she stole. We hear it going back and forth between being played on pizzicato strings, strings that the violinists are plucking with their fingers, and then immediately switching to playing the same notes with the bow in the regular way that you play a violin which is called arco. That's how it's notated in the score. You write arco when you want the players to use the bow. And it goes back and forth, plucking, not plucking. And I think this passing back and forth between pizzicato and arco is a super important technique that happens a lot of times throughout the score. Actually, maybe the marquee moment for that alternation is in the shower scene after all the stabbing when Janet Lee is mortally wounded and is slumping down the wall of the shower and falling over in the tub. And we hear this very strident chord that the strings play with their bows, followed by a bass note. Then plucked, followed by a bass note. So it's bowed, plucked, bowed, Plunked bomb. It's just a striking contrast, and it's an example of him getting a lot of different kinds of sounds out of this homogenous ensemble. Maybe my favorite part in the score, where there's a lot of different kinds of sounds that strings can make at the same time, is in the awesome opening credits music, the Prelude, which has a lot of violent, really strident playing. But then there's this one moment where there's this high flowing line. So we have plucked strings at the same time as staccato but not plucked strings going back and forth, boop, 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 these two chords. Then at the same time, there's violins trilling between those two chords and then on top of that there's this flowing singing melody and it's a whole orchestra within this one section of the orchestra he's a master craftsman Here's an extreme example that you would never know about if you weren't following along in the score. This is a cue called the parlor, when Norman Bates leads Janet Lee into the parlor in the back of the office in the Bates Motel, and there are these falling, kind of eerie chords that go down, down, down. We've heard this associated with Janet Lee's character, Marion, before. It's this kind of tension, uneasy motif, and this time it's on top of a rhythmic element. So the violins are playing these chords, and the violas are going bum 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 bum. Except they're switching off which violas are doing that. He's written it for one solo viola to play that and then to go back and forth with the rest of the viola. So just one guy plays it, and then the rest of the guys play it. And then a second solo viola plays it, and then it goes back to the first solo viola, and then the rest of them. Very ultra, ultra fine gradations of textures. (laughs) I thought it was so funny to note that he had asked for this just one of you play and now just a different one of you play (laughs) and they're all playing you know the same notes but his instinct to deconstruct things and to pass them around was so complete that he went even as far as that
0: well i think there's a purpose behind that which is to create as we said in the vertigo one these wallpapery sort of blocks in which the amount of tension remains stable but that tension is bubbling and so nothing can be truly static it has to be going through a kind of circular metamorphosis so yeah. that's what these processes are the one that i like most in this movie is when arbogast the detective is making his way towards the mansion where he's going to get killed mm-hmm. what we're seeing is him just sort of picking his way up to the house and to hitchcock the concept i think is the audience feels suspense this is a classic don't go in there right you know you might well have been saying don't go in there in 1960 the dramatic effect is you prolong the exact same situation which is that he is doing a thing that you think might lead to trouble and it has to go on for i don't know how long this takes 20 seconds or something And so Herman has this three-note motif, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And he's just sort of shuffling around the order you hear those three notes in three different layers. There's a bass note, which is one of a couple of different notes. And then there's a viola goes da-da-da. Any number of combinations of a couple of different notes. And then the violins go da-da-da or da-da-da or... Da, da, da. and you get this sense of
1: different permutations of the same a three notes
0: permutation exactly that there's some kind of pseudo mathematical process like we need to run out every possible combination of these things and that process uh-huh. has to go on it's like a natural process it's like watching water flowing in the stream like it's going to continue it's
1: going to fill every possible space for it
0: and I think that Hermann just sort of built into his composing hand that if you're writing something to fill out 26 Six seconds or whatever it is, you have to shuffle it around. It's very similar to the effect you see sometimes in animation where something sits still, but you don't want it to look dead. So you cycle through three or four different frames and it sort of wobbles on the page. It keeps it alive. But it's actually better than that. I think in music, when you hear these kinds of processes, there is a sense of suspense built into it. Because of the way we relate to music, you kind of care about what's going to come next. Oh, it's more of the same. And like, where are we going now? Oh, we're going to the same place. And kind of creating a sense of, you know, anxiety level 4.7. This is going to create anxiety. Anxiety level 4.7, and it's going to stay there. (laughs) Yeah. And that's how much activity there is in there. So I think that, yes, you might point out that I'm not sure we can hear the difference between Viola Solo 1, Viola Solo 2, and Viola Tutti. But I think that just that habit of keeping the activity level consistent was purposeful and effective habit. Oh, sure. It
1: was definitely purposeful, and it was obviously effective. It was just fun to discover that he had taken that process all the way down to this thing that I was previously unaware of, Mm -hmm. but it absolutely makes sense. It absolutely tells you of the conviction he had to that process. That cue you were just talking about has another really cool example of some weird other sounds that you can get out of a string orchestra that are unusual. Oh yeah, the very next thing. The very next thing is pizzicato tremolo, tremolo means to play the same note again and again very very fast with a violin you basically just kind of vibrate the bow back and forth over the string and it goes well how do you do a tremolo without a bow it's basically you just strum the strings and he's got these very quiet strummed chords and it just sounds like this faintest little bubbling this effervescence but an uh, eerie effervescence
0: I mean it's like the drum roll Yeah, that's the most terrifying cue in the movie to me because I think you're you right. know I this think guy's right. walking to his death and he opens the door to the house and the music is like here it comes yeah yeah yeah
1: and then there's this other effect on top of that where the first violins are playing harmonics where you don't just let the string vibrate as it normally would you put your finger very lightly at a very specific spot on the string and artificially create a node of vibration so that the string is actually vibrating four times as fast as it normally would, blah, blah, blah. You get a very, very high sound, this very high artificial sound.
0: Yeah, it kind of sounds breathy or airy sometimes, kind Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. the distance or something. Right, right.
1: And then, of course, what happens next is that, yeah, sure enough, Norman Bates wearing his mother's dress comes out and kills him, and we hear the murder music. I think this spot in the score is a perfect place to bring up this thing that I've been waiting to bring up, which is there is a really marked transition that you can hear. There's a contrast at that very moment when the re re strings come back in. Or
0: the weep-weep-weep strings, you know, depending on your denomination. It's a regionalism, yeah. I think. huh okay. My sister said, which one are you recording? I said, Psycho. She said, weep, weep, weep. She did not. She absolutely (laughs) did. I said, is that the syllable you would use? And she said, I just did. And I said, John is saying re, re, re. She said, no way, re, re, re. This really just happened.
1: (laughs) All right. I'm going to have to go ask people. Maybe we'll put up a Twitter poll.
0: (laughs) I think weep, weep, weep is the canonical one. But maybe, as you said, it's regional. You're on the West Coast. Maybe the East Coast says weep. It's a
2: word
1: already, though. Like, why why do you want to use a pre existing word? It's an
0: appropriate word. Weep. uh,
1: Thou shalt weep. That's not at all. But that's not what you're thinking as you say weep, 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 is it? No,
0: I don't think of it as a word. It's the sound weep, weep, weep. I actually don't think it's a great word for it. I'm just reporting what I believe. This is just an ethnographical report that the peoples of the United (laughs) States of America, when making the psycho sound, (laughs) seem to say weep, weep, weep. They do not. You can look under, Mm. it's in the Journal of Psycholinguistics.
1: (laughs) Uh, Anyway, back to this moment when Arbogast is killed and we suddenly hear the re 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 strings come back in, they sound different than the strings sounded in the music that was playing just before. The recording of it sounds like different instruments a little bit. Why is that, Andy?
0: Well, first of all, I think it's because they have been recorded up close and turned way up because they want this to stand out. Mm -hmm. But a naturalistic way of achieving that same end is, we said that this is a score for string orchestra, but it is almost entirely a score for muted string orchestra. Strings playing... Consordino with mute. Yeah, you don't usually think
1: of a violin, of a stringed instrument as an instrument that can be muted. Like, it's easy to imagine a trumpet player putting some round thing in the end of the trumpet, and, you know, it goes wah, 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 and that's a trumpet mute. How do you mute a violin? Well, a string mute looks like a miniature hockey puck, essentially. It's a small rubber disc that you stick between the strings on the bridge of the instrument, and it gives a slight muffling sound. It takes away some of the romantic singing sound that you associate with a violin and makes it flatter. And, you know, talk about a black and white sound. You know, this was really the insight that he had about how he really wanted to make a black and white sound, not just strings, but muted strings, strings that sound gray and flat, and they've lost their luster. You know, yes, it's muted in the sense that it makes it softer, but it also has a timbral change that it makes it, you know, matte. A matte finish.
0: Yeah, I think just fewer parts of the instrument resonate when you're Mm -hmm. pulling the bow across the strings.
1: You know, that's how the violin is designed in the first place, to have all of those sympathetic vibrations add up to this beautiful sound. So the mute kind of intentionally subverts that to some degree. So here I have an example actually of just one violin, not a section, but just a single solo violinist playing a little snippet of music from Psycho, and let's listen to it play without a mute. And now let's listen to that same little snippet with the mute on the string, which is how it's notated in the score. Yeah, it constricts the sound.
0: Yeah, it's subtle but it is also something that over the course of the whole piece, that subtlety comes across.
1: It's subtle, but the accumulative effect of a whole section right. having that subtle constriction on it, it really does come across. It adds up. And hey, Andy, you know who's playing the violin just now?
0: I can guess. <laughs> Go ahead, guess. I think it's the violinist who lives in your house.
1: <laughs> it's that very one. Yeah, I've mentioned it a few times on this show. My wife, Becky, she's a professional violinist. She plays in orchestras. She records film music a lot of the time, actually. And she's kind enough to play those examples for us. In fact, I have Becky right here with with me. Hi Becky.
3: Hey guys, how you doing? Hi, Becky. Hi, Andy.
1: Thanks for playing those clips for us, Becky.
3: Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Can I take just slight issue with the description of a mute as a hockey puck? (laughs) It
1: it looks like a little hockey puck.
3: Some of them look like little hockey pucks. What else do they look like? What they are is just a piece of rubber that come in many different shapes and forms that get pushed up against the bridge to limit vibration. But not all of them look like little hockey pucks. There is others that you just push up to the bridge that sort of have wire on the back end. There are even some made out of wood, as you would imagine when we're talking about four 400- and 500 year old technology with stringed instruments that there were mutes before rubber was a standard or easily obtainable material.
0: Do you see consort as like an expressive indication too? Does that make you play differently or do you just trust the mute to do its thing?
3: Yes and no. There are times when you look at it and go, oh, right, they want this to not overpower something else that's happening. This is just a technical, let's make sure the, you know, high shrill violins aren't taking over and drawing focus when they're playing a supporting role. There are other times... And I think this applies to Psycho, where the composer calls for concertino, but then they write forte, and they write big loud crescendos, and they write, and what they- Yeah,
1: that's all over the score here. There's fortissimo marked for concertino.
3: And I had a conductor once who talked about this and I thought he put it really well when he talked about there is a strained sound to a section of string players fighting against a limitation they've put on their instrument. There's a specific sound to that and I think you hear that all over Psycho where it's the tension of someone straining to do something and there's a roadblock in their way. Mm. And that creates a specific kind of consort sound and I think that's really largely what Hermann was looking for.
1: There are actually a couple of other fun, somewhat unusual violin techniques in this score. Can you tell us what it means when it's notated for the strings to play sul ponticello?
3: Sure. Sul ponticello means that if you can sort of picture a violin, there's the black piece that your fingers are on that's called the fingerboard, and then there's sort of a space that the strings are suspended over, and they're suspended by a bridge. Ponticello being the Italian for bridge, to play sul ponticello means to play on the bridge. The Opposite of that, if I can talk about it, is sultasto.
1: Well, that's in the score too.
3: Which is to play over the fingerboard with the bow. Standard violin playing, the clear sound of a string player comes from keeping a very straight bow parallel between the bridge and the fingerboard. And to create different sounds and timbres, we sort of adjust closer to the bridge and closer to the fingerboard. But to play on either one are very extreme sounds. To play sultasto, which is over the fingerboard, Gives it a very airy, ethereal, misty sound that feels very fuzzy around the edges. <laughs> To play sul ponticello with the bow right on the bridge or as close to it as you can get, well, I tell students, adult students at least, that I think it sounds like a hangover. It sounds like when the lights are too bright and the sounds are too loud. It creates lots of string noise and sort of a, like an electrically charged crackle on the sound. I think it's worth pointing out that, again, Herman kind of sets up a roadblock. He asks for this technique for sul ponticello, which, like I said, is really playing on the bridge, but there's already something on your bridge. I believe that same passage is also con sordino. Yes. So he's trying to kind of have three things all taking up the same place. So when you listen to that in the score, to me, the soltasto reads, but the sul ponticello sounds... Hesitant, and I think that's just a technical issue. You can only get so close to the bridge
1: when you have a mute on
3: because it. there is a mute literally in your way.
0: Huh. All right. Well, thanks a lot for popping on with us, Becky.
3: Anytime. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So we launched into this whole thing about the mute because the violent stabbing is one of the only places in the score that is without the muton. So it's supposed to jump out as this suddenly more vivid, more intense, sharper timbre.
1: Yeah, and I'm really glad that Hermann kind of allowed himself this exception because I can imagine with his very process-oriented mind that, you know, he set up a rule, he's going to do the whole thing with muted strings. He probably could have found a way to get a really shrieking, horrifying sound out of muted strings if he wanted to, but he he let his hair down as it were, he uh, he let the mutes off for the murder scene. And of course, it's the right decision. This music really does stand apart in that way.
0: So I want to just look at sort of the overall architecture of the score as supporting the yeah. overall architecture of the movie. Great. So as we mentioned, this is the most spoiler-based movie of all time. In fact,
1: Hitchcock gave the original spoiler alert itself. He was adamant about people not arriving late to the theater. He made these posters and cardboard cutout stand-ups. That were supposed to be put in the lobbies of the movie theaters about how no one would be allowed admittance after the start of the picture. Yeah,
0: we can probably get him on here. We can hear his voice. Here, Hitch, tell us about the policy.
1: I've suggested that Psycho be seen from the beginning. In fact, this is more than a suggestion. It is required. This, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more. We really have only your enjoyment in mind.
0: And this is totally part and parcel of making a sleazy piece of crap because, you know, that guy, uh, William Castle, who made like House on Haunted Hill and made these like really trashy movies and he had gimmicks always. Like the preview was him saying, I took out an insurance policy in advance of releasing this movie because I can't be liable for people who die of heart attacks or, you know, like putting buzzers in people's chairs. Joy buzzers. And I think Hitchcock saw that and he was like, I'm going to get my hands in with some promotional gimmicks. And the gimmick, was no late admittance which today looking back we say how is that a gimmick it just makes sense
2: you see Psycho is most enjoyable when viewed beginning at the beginning and proceeding to the end I realize this is a
1: revolutionary concept but we have discovered that Psycho is unlike most motion pictures and does not improve when run backwards.
0: But at the time, everyone expected they would go in and watch a movie from the middle. And it truly would have hurt this movie to watch it from the middle. That's
1: true. Yeah, they thought they would go in in the middle and then, you know, stick around until it showed again and watch what they missed.
0: Uh, Yeah, but in this case, they'd be surprised when they watched what they missed. (laughs) I
1: wonder if what would happen if you watched the movie that way. If you started from after she was dead and then you came back around and saw the beginning of the movie and this whole plot lot about her driving away with the money maybe it would be surprising that way
0: <laughs> yeah psycho memento would be a very strange movie Mis <laughs> M- psycho M- yeah pimento there you go anyway so the whole first half of the movie has tricks up its sleeve herman needs to both be selling the real movie and the fake movie mm-hmm Even the prelude, the famous prelude. You know, Alfred Hitchcock has made clear we're seeing a movie with some kind of thrills and chills in it and suspense, and it's a Hitchcock joint, but (laughs) we don't know what it's about. And this music is pretty much as much suspense and excitement as you can create without any object. Mm -hmm. It's hard to imagine getting an audience more riled up about nothing than (laughs) this music. The visuals are completely abstract.
1: Yeah we're watching another of these great Saul Bass opening title sequences where there's all these horizontal lines shooting back and forth and introducing and then erasing the names of the credits. It's really cool looking but yeah there's no actual thing in it.
0: Right basically the audience needs to be put in a state of expecting something is going going to happen and then watching with suspense for what that thing is going to be but it could be anything that sounds like this anything that has a strike to it and has an agitation to it Mm -hmm. and then the movie starts and we get these chords it's basically just the same chord in different configurations drifting 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 and it's a little queasy. It's a half diminished chord, I think, is what it is. Okay. It just floats around. hmm I just think these opening scenes are so brilliantly played to both goals that I just mentioned. They play the movie that you think you're watching, and they also play the movie that you don't yet realize you're watching. You know, it's like lights up on this couple with as many clothes off as they're allowed to have off in 1960. Yeah never did eat your lunch did you
2: i better get back to the office these extended lunch hours give my boss excess acid
0: they look like they're the cover of a pulp novel it looks like sleaze you know (laughs) circa 1960 we have to watch a whole scene where they talk about their romantic problems marion doesn't want to be meeting her boyfriend in hotels we
3: can see each other we can even have dinner but respectably in my
2: house with my mother's picture on the mantle and my sister helping me broil a big steak for three And after the steak
0: it's the two of them having Mr. this Lama's discussion. Is this hey. the subject of the movie? The music is non-committal Yeah
2: all right Marion, whenever it's possible, I want to
0: see you. I think that if there was a love theme here, we would say, who are these people? Why is there a love theme here? And if there were no music, we'd say, why are we being forced to watch this? This doesn't seem like a movie. So Hermann lays in this perfectly calibrated stuff. It's like a...
1: Yeah, it's like non-stuff stuff. stuff. It's not even really a theme. It's a sequence.
0: That's right. It's a pure sequence.
1: It's the same figure being repeated while moving down, 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 down. the same thing over and over again. And again, like we talked about in Vertigo, it's full of suspended notes, notes that resolve from one note down to another note that's in a chord. And it's this sequential
0: suspension. It's not really a melody. Hermans. Sense of how much he can put in is exactly right this is such a thin scene with these sort of thin stock problems Mm -hmm. for these characters who basically are just bodies so far and he does something that feels sincere we do feel like there's some kind of trouble but it's so abstract
2: how could you even think a thing like that
3: don't miss your plane
2: hey we can lead together can't we
3: I'm late And uh, you have to put your shoes on.
0: The whole first half of this movie introduces a series of simple but effective harmonic ideas. We end up hearing the music from the prelude again as she's driving. Mm -hmm. It turns out to correspond, at least in those scenes, to the tension, the fear of her flight from the people who are going to discover that she's stolen money. Well, I
3: ain't about to kiss off $40,000. I'll get it back, and if any of it's missing, I'll replace it with her fine, soft flesh. I'll track her, never you doubt it.
0: She hears these voices in her head, and we hear the prelude. It's a wonderfully effective identification of an agitation that we've already felt with now we've got a situation that corresponds to it. Yeah,
1: it's really selling hard that this is the movie we're going to watch.
0: we hear those drifting chords a couple other times we also hear you played it earlier that music associated with the money with the theft with the crime that she's gotten herself into right We're really just restricted to those materials until right before her death, when Norman Bates starts to make himself a part of the movie, there's this moment Marion hears Norman arguing with his mother and his mother is insulting him and humiliating him.
3: Oh, do I have to tell her because you don't have the gut, huh, boy? you have the guts boy shut up shut
0: up and then Norman comes back out of the house and we hear the same drifting chords that we've been hearing throughout the movie the first thing we heard in the movie but now they are sick yeah something has gone wrong in those harmonies. Corrupted. They've been corrupted. They are revealing something worse than anything that we have Mm -hmm. encountered previously in the movie. And then the pivotal cue in the movie, I mean, of course, the murder cue that everyone knows about is the famous thing. But really the linchpin of the score, I think, is this cue called the madhouse. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is after the long conversation that Marion and Norman have... And I tried to watch this movie as though I were a clueless 1960 viewer who did not know what was coming. And I think during this sequence, you start to think, what is going on with this movie? Yeah.
1: My hobby is stuffing things, you know,
0: taxidermy. You're following Marion Crane. You're feeling all this agitation on her behalf. And then she stops for the night. And now we're spending a lot of time with the frankly, really creepy guy who runs the motel. Now, why would we do that? In fact, she's all up in her head about her own issues. And after she sits with Norman Bates for a while, she's actually sort of drawn out of herself. She's like, you know, you really should probably get away from here. We get to see this side of her personality that's just a genuine concern for a stranger.
1: Mm -hmm. A son is a poor substitute
2: for a lover.
3: Why don't you go away?
0: And over the course of this scene, the movie is slowly but surely handed over to Norman Bates those of us who've seen it before know why that handoff is happening but some kind of shift of the center of gravity happens through this scene and the music seals it when it comes in after she suggests hopefully she thinks that maybe norman's very disturbed mother might do better for both herself and for norman if she were in some kind of an institution
3: wouldn't it be better if you put her Someplace. He
0: gets very defensive and upset about this. A madhouse? Is that what you mean? You mean an institution? A madhouse? And suddenly we hear People these three notes. Madhouse someplace.
1: It's such a great entrance. He waded through that whole scene, which has already gotten pretty weird. He's talking about embalming all these birds. And it's definitely taken a turn. As you said, it's unsettling that we're spending so much time with this weird stranger. But Hermann waits until the madhouse line. And it's a perfect entrance. I also want to use this opportunity to say, on watching it again, how good Anthony Perkins is. He plays it so well. He's so naturalistic. He's so believable, both in his kind of bumbling, friendly Norman persona and in his there's something really troubling and awful underneath aspect of it. It's a tour de force performance, I think.
0: I totally agree, and I had the same thought watching it again. I've seen it many times, but not in the past few years, and that was something I really focused on this time, that he's doing all kinds of interesting stuff. They're not the standard way of handling even a disturbed young man. Just a great performance. So once this entrance has come, and now these three notes... Are so distinctive and well etched we can recognize them even though they're fairly dissonant not very hummable your ear recognizes it and it becomes the basis of the entire second half of the movie's score the norman half of the movie i mean people in analyses call this the madness motif but it's really Mm -hmm. just everything to do with what is wrong in the bates household something is very very wrong here and these three notes go along with it a madhouse and then this cue unfurls itself, and it is creepy chromaticism. Put her in some place.
3: I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound uncaring.
1: What do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears, and the cruel eyes studying you. My mother there? But she's harmless.
0: German expressionist or Bartok or 12-tone, you know, all these allusions to high 20th century art music
3: dissonance.
0: It's like a whole universe of creepiness that the first half of the movie did not you know we haven't heard this before we've heard disturbing and scary music but it's been scary at a different level i think herman had a dramatic understanding of what this movie could be Mm -hmm. that he reveals here that the first half of the movie says oh my god is this woman going to get away with this theft oh my god are the people going to catch up with her does that cop know her license plate number we're worried about all this stuff and at the middle of the movie, there's kind of a revelation. At the end of this conversation, Marion says, you know what, Norman, talking to someone truly disturbed like you, I've realized I should just go turn in that money. I should just go back. Yeah. The movie is saying, all of this stuff, that's like well adjusted. You're worried that you broke the law. You might have betrayed some people and will they forgive you? That is all okay. Yeah, that's normal stuff. Compared to being a psycho. <laughs> you should be so lucky as to worry about whether you're going to get put in jail for stealing money or get (laughs) forgiven by your boss. Also, it turns out in the second half, they just wanted to forgive her. They just wanted it to be resolved. Yeah, they
1: were totally going to forgive her. If she hadn't gotten murdered, everything would have turned out fine. They didn't want to press charges.
0: Norman Bates has so much deeper problems than that. And the (laughs) music... I just think this is like a stroke of genius to write genuinely agitating, disturbing music Mm -hmm. and then get 48 minutes in and say, you wish you could have that back. Here's something much worse. (laughs) And you don't notice it happening because it's dialogue scoring. You're following what Norman is saying. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues
1: and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately...
0: You just get sucked into this performance, and this kind of slow revealing of all of the twists and turns in this guy's head, and it's just completely organic.
1: But I hate to even think about it. She needs me. Yeah. So zooming out from that, I noticed a very similar thing that I hadn't quite articulated to myself before, which is that the music in the first half of the movie, the music we heard over the credits, and we hear that music again as she's driving. It's very tense. That same music makes one little cameo appearance again in the second half of the movie Mm -hmm. when Arbogast, the detective, is starting to do his investigation. It's a little echo of it, it's lost some of its oomph, it's lost some of the energy behind it, it's a little lighter.
0: Yeah, it feels quaint by that point.
1: It's like a little tease. It's like, ha, ha, ha. Remember when you thought the movie was about this, about a detective trying to find a lost girl, right? Ha, ha, ha.
0: Totally, yeah. Yeah. People who were there in 1960 say that when the shower scene happened, like, the whole audience would start screaming. It was truly an event. The level of shock. People saying they left feeling like they had been violated, that something had been done to them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that there's the feeling in the second half that, like, any reference to your foolish conceptions about the first first half, it's like laughable. Who cares about that stuff? Yeah,
1: this cue is like explicitly making fun of that, of what naives we were in the first half of the movie. Yeah, it is. But anyway, this material, this kind of repetitive, blocky stuff, you know, you went through and you listed the material that he works with through the first half of the movie. All of this stuff is done with this very characteristic modular, cellular, small pieces arranged and arranged and arranged kind of technique that Hermann does that we've talked about a whole bunch now for both of these movies. It's all very ordered. The music is regimented in that Mm -hmm. way. You can follow the building blocks. After this cue, the madhouse that you identified, and then as we move further and further into the second half of the movie, after the murders... The music, it loses that order. It devolves into this flowing, oozing, yeah, chromaticism, like you said. It doesn't have this kind of blocky brick, other brick, other brick, 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 other brick kind of form that he did in the first half. And I think it grows even more and more so in that way as Marion's sister and Marion's boyfriend come looking for her and they're searching through the cabins of the motel. It's this like nearly ambient by comparison creepiness, eeriness, and it doesn't have an order to it and it's extremely unsettling especially juxtaposed with what we heard in the first half.
0: So you remember when we talked about Corngold's Robin Hood score, we spent a good part of that conversation talking about how some of the bounding, joyous energy, the scale of what was being expressed there came out of the fact that he had borrowed from an earlier work of his own that already had all this energy in it and something like that is going on here too a lot of the material that is in the second half of this movie is derived one way or another from a work that herman had written in the 30s a sinfonietta for strings which i think he wrote in 1935 i believe it had never been performed and was essentially an unused work it had been published oddly enough but never performed It was probably his most Schoenbergian work, his most atonal mm-hmm. composition. It's very free form. I mean, it announces different forms of theme and variations and an interlude, but it's through composed expressionism. Hermann never talked about why he picked it up or in what spirit he picked it up, but he went and got this extremely ambitious, high art-oriented piece of music he'd written and started taking pieces of it and laying it into this sleazy schlock exercise that Hitchcock had done and creating a really disturbing kind of combination. A lot of the cues that you're talking about that ooze around and don't feel regimented are derived, some more directly than others, from this piece. Like, here we are, a passage in the Sinfonietta. Maybe it sounds familiar, cause we've already heard
1: it. their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Of course, I've suggested it myself.
0: Or the swamp cue that I mentioned a while ago is not appearing in the swamp sequence. You know, what we see on screen is Norman cleaning up after the murder unwittingly grabbing the $40,000 wrapped in newspaper and not knowing it, but we're hearing this supremely intense music. ¶¶ varied form of music that was written you know, 25 years earlier as a pure concert work.
1: It's so interesting that he reached for this piece. I think he wanted to go in this atonal direction to make as marked a contrast as he could with his more customary film writing style that he did in the first half, this cellular block structure. He wanted it to feel like a devolution, sinking into, you know, less human of an experience, a psychotic experience. For the very last cue of the score, for when Norman is sitting in the jail cell and talking to himself in mother's voice.
2: It's sad. When a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son.
1: He's totally broken, and Hermann plays that break by playing music that is, uh, yeah, this experiment in unhumanity.
0: Oh, it's very old. human. It's just a an unwell human. Schoenberg himself was, girls, at least at the beginning of his man. atonal period, As trying to I express the most Ex- anguished Ex- possible, Ex- tortured I soul feelings. And that's where these increasingly atonal oh, sounds came I from. And I think it's more in that spirit that Hermann just had written this piece, and, quiet, and in that spirit that he reached for it. Like, these extreme dissonances are
3: anguish. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person
0: I am. These tones will never find a home. They don't live in a universe where there are homes. They're just, you know, stretching against each other. So that final cue is another one of the things that's lifted from the Sinfonietta. That's an example where he really sort of cut and pasted from the earlier work. But there's evidence throughout that he had the score of that earlier work sort of in front of him for inspiration, even if he wasn't copying it. Like, one of the variations and the theme of variations in the Sinfonietta is this thing that goes dun 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 dun. dun bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and that exact shape happens in psycho, but with completely different chords. Uh-huh. And it just gives you the impression that he kind of had the score and sort of glanced at it and thought, oh, I'll do something like that. I think he opened it up to just try and put his head in a zone that he had not spent time in recently Hmm. because he had this insight that that kind of tortured music, truly harmonically tortured music, would reveal something that was going on behind the superficially you know, exploitative cheap quality of this story. That if you really took the substance of this story seriously, it's the kind of stuff that the German expressionists were trying to get at. Tortured souls and unsettled <laughs> minds. That's what's thrilling to me about this movie and this score. That it kind of links up the cheapest you know, quick and dirty, I don't really give a crap about the substance way of thinking about these things. And this extremely refined, high art cultured way of addressing these materials and jams them together and makes something I'm not sure there's any other movie quite like it.
1: I just wanted to just add a note to your observation that he, you know, used this material from a pre existing thing that he wrote. In our last episode, we talked about Nino Rota having done that. He reached into his old. Bag of Tricks, you know, scores that he had written for previous movies and plucked out a couple of themes to put into The Godfather. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's allowed to do that, but I, I don't know, I felt a little disappointed to, to <laughs> learn that the, you know, the love theme from The Godfather wasn't original to The Godfather. But I think that somehow this kind of self-borrowing... That Hermann did and that Korngold did too Where they're taking music that hadn't really found a proper home before And that pointedly had not been married to a movie before That feels like a much more valid creative move It feels like l- less of an infraction perhaps mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's totally fair game for him to have gone back to this old concert piece of his Both for some explicit material and then for some inspiration for other things to do too because, it, you know, it existed. And like you said, it was a headspace that was useful to him. And similarly for Corngold, I think, it gets to be problematic when you try to associate music with different movies at the same time. You know, I think that's what starts to feel like a contradiction to people.
0: Well, Bernard Herrmann definitely did both of those things over the course of his career. I mean, he was a firm believer in the, his right to self-borrow. I'm not sure that there's any score-to-score self-borrowing going on here, but he definitely did a lot of that. But I agree with you that this kind of self-borrowing is more more... more fertile, let's say, because Mm. I guess I was trying to express this, but maybe I can say it more precisely. Because I think that in this case and in the Korngold case, it draws into the movie space a kind of expression that is hard to arrive at from within the movie space. I think that when you're thinking about composing an abstract concert piece in the grand classical tradition, there's a kind of encouragement there to speak of the profoundest things you can speak of and speak in the most elevated terms that you dare use and go expressively all out. And I think that that is a pretty hard frame of mind to arrive at after the producer tells you what to do and how many weeks you have to do it. And so (laughs) there's just a kind of benefit to the movie of today, I'm worried about deadline. But 10 years ago, I was soaring through the skies in my most ambitious self. And you get this burst of creative juice that comes from these kinds of borrowings. That's certainly how I felt about Robin Hood. And and that's how I feel about this too.
1: Yeah, because the work, the important work in the film score is the association and the decisions that you make about what music to associate with the movie. Yeah. You know, these great masters at it that we are talking about, they had this special insight in associating a certain musical sound with the movies that they were tasked with scoring. And uh, that winds up elevating the movie into something, a tyrannascendent, to use a word. What? I've used before. What?
0: Tyrannascendent?
1: Yeah, tyrannascendent.
0: Oh, transcendent. (laughs)
1: So, okay, speaking of all the masters doing all of their transcendent work Mm -hmm. We got to wrap this up and put this on the list with the other things Sure. Okay, so I have a very clear sense of where I want to put this on the list So given that information, Annie, do you want to go first or second? I
0: want you to go first Okay,
1: so this is going to go towards the top of my list This is going to go indeed in my top five Would you say you're with me so far? I am Okay, is it going to vie for the top against E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Vertigo? I think I'm gonna still let it fall underneath that duo. I think that what we discovered about how those movies were conceived of with the need for music to tell the story and the music wonderfully in each of those cases, it rose to the occasion of really being the emotional import of the movie in those cases. I think that this is slightly more servile What I really feel like it is on a par with, in fact, I've sensed a lot of parallels between this and Jaws, which is in my number three spot right now. Mm In Jaws, we also made the comparison of this onomatopoeic noise that happens in the music for the shark and for the stabbing knife. And you said in the Jaws episode that Jaws owes a real debt to Psycho in that way. Mm -hmm. I also think that both Jaws and Psycho are examples of the composer having some ideas about the movie that the director did not have, and that, in fact, wound up being surprises to the director. We talked about how Williams and Jaws really had the idea to make it be a rollicking sea adventure and not just a straight-ahead horror film that Spielberg wanted in Psycho. Like you said, Hermann reached for this avant-garde expressionism to really make the movie feel special. Furthermore, he disobeyed a direct order and scored the scene he wasn't supposed to score and all of that felt like it was a revelation to the director in both cases and i think that's super interesting and super accomplished but i think i just want to leave that achievement below the totally holistic everybody on the same page the whole time achievement of making a movie that needs to have a great score and then making a great score to fit into that movie so I feel this as really very, on a similar footing as Jaws. I kind of want to leave it tied in my number three spot. But, you know, last time I had a near tie between a Williams score and a Hermann score, between E.T. and Vertigo, I let Williams come out on top. E.T. is at the top of my list. I think if only to even things out, I'm going to let Hermann win the shootout here. And, you know, because he got there first. So I'm going to put Psycho at number three slip Jaws to
0: four. Sounds good. I am looking at the very top section of my list also. And I see this as a bigger accomplishment, certainly than Robin Hood or Jaws. I want to put it in the top three area there because mm-hmm. I feel like that thing that I just enthused about a minute ago and don't need to completely restate about how he took the lowest, cheapest movie that Hitchcock had made and said, I see how this is can be taken seriously, can be delivered to a different aesthetic register just by being matched up with this other kind of artistic intention. I just think that's so brilliant. You know, this is a movie about a naked lady getting stabbed to death in a shower, which we have an idea of what that is. That's an exploitation horror movie. And we sort of push that to a certain corner of culture. And because of this score, that's not what this movie is. It's not what it feels like. It's not how people relate to it. At least for me, I feel like I'm watching something much more interesting than that. Hard to put a finger on quite what it is because it stands alone. So to me, this is a unique achievement. So you just said the ones where everyone was working together from the beginning, the music was always part of the intent. And it's you know such an equal partner as in E.T. and Vertigo. You want to rank that above. But part of my thinking was this is even more exciting. It's like hmm. no one made a special slot for him. He came in, he had this kind of genius-level aesthetic insight. If I add this to it, there'll be a chemical reaction and it'll become something different. Maybe that's even more exciting to me. I mean, it can't usually be pulled off. And it's got this kind of compositional integrity to it, partially through the scoring ensemble, seeming, like you said, it gives it a unity that it's all for string ensemble, but also it's just... All that rigor and then the expressionist freedom that emerges out of the other end of the rigor. There's something very exciting about that just to be heard in concert. Like the suite from Psycho is pretty good music. It's a pretty good...
1: Andy, I want to remind you, though, that when you were agonizing about whether to put Vertigo above E.T. or not, that you said that you didn't think you were going to put another Herman score above Vertigo.
0: Yeah, I probably said that. John, I don't know how to do this. Yeah,
1: put it right below Vertigo, just like me, is how to do it. I
0: have a sense of this, like, three-way tie where this one is different from the other two. And I don't really have a strong feeling after that. So... Oh, no. Oh, no. What? What do you care?
1: I liked that we both had the same top two.
0: Hmm. Why did you like it so much? Because
1: it, uh, <laughs> you know, corroborates. It's a
0: cor- <laughs> You feel corroborated. Yeah, because this whole enterprise is nerve-wracking because it's based on nothing. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'll do as you like. I will put it below vertigo. I'll put it in my third position. Okay. But there's something spicy about it. It's got a flavor that no other movie has that I can think of of seeming like an art photograph and trash and um <laughs> people who love the movies, that's what they love. They love that it's, you know, commerce and art at the same time. They love that it's high and low at the same time and this feels like the epitome of that. And how do I rank that against these more sweeping kind of romantic musical experiences? I, I don't know. I don't really have a way of ranking. If it makes you feel good that we've got the same two at the top, I'm willing to do it for that reason. I really feel a three-way tie kind of feeling here <laughs> but all right i will put it below vertigo in my third position okay sounds good right
1: now i feel bad that i made you do that but i guess there's been enough times where you did something i wasn't in love with you doing so i'll take it i'll book the win
0: i'm really looking forward to when we reach the end of the list because yeah whatever we do beyond that we are not going to keep ranking everything it's just like it's <laughs> agonizing <laughs> i feel like this music sounds when we do this part
1: uh, no we're not gonna come back and say whether uh you know beetlejuice belongs between uh, sunset boulevard and laura or something
0: uh if the listeners pay us i'll do it but otherwise no oh, okay great <laughs> great okay i'll set that up andy okay, great. um
1: <laughs> speaking of setting things up next episode we're all the way into the top three of the afis list can you believe it yes from uh way back when we were just a glint in craig and carla's eye here we are in the top three and the number three movie on the AFI's list is Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. score by Maurice Jarre. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this movie?
0: When I was a kid and did not understand enough about the world to follow everything that happened in it. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to watching it again as an adult.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm mostly in the same boat as you. I think I saw it when I was a bit older than that, uh, maybe in high school or something. Yeah, similarly, I'm looking forward to giving it a full adult's attention.
0: That's what I always bring, one full adult attention.
1: <laughs> That's the correct amount, I think.
0: It's a long movie, right? It's a very long movie. Is this the longest one? Or Ben-Hur is the longest one, right? I was about
1: to say, I'm pretty sure this is the longest since Ben-Hur that we've had to watch.
0: Is it the widest movie? (laughs) Is this the widest movie on the list?
1: (laughs) I think that it is, yeah. This aspect ratio is a real hell of a thing.
0: Hey, listeners, if you like the show, you know the drill. Yeah. Do the stuff that people who like shows do. (laughs) First of all, subscribe to the show. Second of all, review the show favorably. Sure. Third of all, contact the makers of the show John, the preferred way of contacting us is on Twitter, is that correct? At Score Settlers.
1: Sure, at Score Settlers. Also, go ahead and check out our website, settlingthescorepodcast.com, if you want to keep up on these lists that we're making and agonizing over. Okay, now is when we would say a pithy sign-off. If we had not arrived upon and then dismissed a pithy sign-off over the course of doing all these episodes.
0: Oh, yes. If we had an excellent and appropriate and satisfying closing phrase, this would be a fine spot for us to say it.
1: Yes, indeed. This is the sound of the two of us signing off. Signing
0: off. Imagine a sign-off.